The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and welcome to yet another edition of Friday Night Live with me, Hafiz Shaban. This Friday early evening on the 6th of March 2020. Corresponding to the 11th of Rajab, uh, 1441, as usual, we are broadcasting live to Luton on 105.1 FM. And nationally, of course, also broadcasting live to some of our sister stations nationally on Sheffield Link FM, Peterborough Salam, Derby, Nottingham. Internationally, of course, you can tune in to us via Facebook. Uh, or the Inspire FM app. Uh, so plenty of ways of tuning in and listening to today's discussion, to today's discourse and debate. And most importantly, as always, do try to join in uh, our conversation this evening. Uh, 01582 is the number. 01582481822. I want to I wanna speak to some of my good listeners uh, this evening. 01582481822. Many, many stories we're going to be discussing this evening. So there's plenty of uh, topics for you to choose, uh, have an opinion on and uh, get your thoughts across to me here live in the Inspire FM studio and then of course live to nationally international audiences 0779-0779-481-822 is the number for SMS and WhatsApp messages right of course Juma Bubarak to everyone I mean very interesting Juma Khutbah today uh, in the Islamic Centre on the coronavirus so some advice that was being given on the coronavirus from an Islamic perspective I thought it was a very interesting topic Topic, uh, in terms of the khutbah and alhamdulillah we've got the khatib we've got the khatib who gave that khutbah who's also going to be giving us an update on not an update but an islamic perspective how to view you know the coronavirus from an islamic perspective so we've managed to get in touch with the khatib and the khatib is going to be available for us later on this evening later on this evening later on this show and we're going to be getting some advice from the the khatib inshallah but before then we've got a number of other stories we're going to be covering for to, with, with yourselves uh, so do try to get involved we're going to be uh, discussing the us and taliban uh, deal that was signed earlier this week right that was after 18 or 19 years of war with uh, with afghanistan the us war against afghanistan or the taliban 19 years wow right so what prompted the us to come to the table negotiation table with the taliban and sign their deal we're going to be looking behind the scene and understanding trying to understand who are the gain who are the winners and who are the losers and what is really driving the peace deal uh, between us and taliban so that's going to be our lead story we're also going to be getting an update uh, from syria and turkey on the clashes you know the, the border clashes and what's happening in idlib right so a lot going on there we're going to get an update from a human from a political perspective and also from a humanitarian perspective that's your first hour this evening second hour hour of the show inshallah ta'ala like i said to you I'm, i've got the khatib for you who gave the khutbah on islam and the coronavirus how do we look at the the, the virus the epidemics or you know the, the you know there's such illnesses or such diseases uh, from an islamic perspective we've got a good news some good news coming from olive tree primary school in luton so we're going to be sharing that with you and speaking to the head of Olive Tree Primary School and then we're also going to be looking at a, a local initiative a local initiative a very creative initiative uh, initiative that is uh, that is being put together to address knife crime to address knife crime so that's the lineup this evening folks 
Right, inshallah, we're gonna we're gonna be moving on to our lead story. But before we move on to the the news story, in fact, we've we've got someone on 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 the call to address uh, today's disruption in Bury Park. So this is a very Luton-centric uh, conversation and a story. Uh, anyone who's uh, been around in Luton today would have would have really realized the disruption that has been caused today in Bury Park. This is Luton, and this is almost the heart of Luton, uh, or at least the, the the Asian area where there's a lot of a huge shopping parade huge shopping market and uh, a lot of shops around the whole area was was sealed off uh, earlier on this uh, uh, this morning in fact I, I, I drove pa- through Bury Park very early hours of, of the morning and saw the police cars in action we've got Shazia Mahmood on, on, on the call who's uh, from Nirala Bury Park uh, to give us an update uh, Shazia Salaamu Jazakallah for for joining us uh, on Friday Night Live. Uh, so, uh, has has your business been impacted by uh, what's been happening in Bury Park uh, today, Shazia? It has been. It has been. It's Friday. Fridays were always really, really busy, and yeah. it was certainly very much quieter than it normally is today. Right. So, 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 tell us, uh, what, what, what were you kept well informed in terms of what what's been happening, or was the background to it? Have, uh, was there a clear line of communication from the police in terms of advising we, the businesses what's no, happening? Not, not at our side of the uh, of the street. The right. um, we only we basically heard from the rumor mill. We had customers who were coming in and telling us what they thought was happening. Um, But we didn't really know what was happening at all. I only found out because I usually go into the shop early and nothing had happened when I went in. And it was only when I was about to open that I realized that the whole street was blocked up. Um, So I I didn't really know at all what was happening. And people started coming in and telling us. All right. Okay, subhanAllah. So it's, it's a lot of disruption, but of course, I'm just reading the, the press statement on, on the Bedfordshire Police website. The roads uh-huh. now in Luton, I, be, I believe, have now reopened. Yeah, yeah, so alhamdulillah. So it's time to catch up on business. Maybe maybe stay uh, uh, stay open a few hours uh, later on this evening to catch up on the, all of that lost I, trade, I, sister. To be honest, I mean, um, I, I don't know what other people think about this, yeah. but I personally, I feel that the police, what the police did was right. Yeah. Um, it, it was a suspicious um, device in a vehicle. Yeah. We weren't sure what it was. Hmm. And I think anybody would say unequivocally that it would be better to be safe rather than sorry. We don't yeah. know what it was. Yeah. Nobody knew what it was. And rather than have a situation where people are hurt or injured, yeah. it's better just to keep everybody safe. And they, I think they followed procedure, did everything they were supposed to do. And at the end of the day, everybody's fine. Yeah. Whatever it turned out to be, we don't really know yet, but yeah. at least we know that um, nobody was hurt. Yeah, absolutely. Jazakallah, Sister Shazia, for, for the update. Unfortunately, no. we, we, we're running out of time, so we've got to move on to the next story. But Jazakallah, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jazakallah. Okay, that was Sister Shazia Mahmood uh, from Nirala Bray Park update. If, if you've been impacted by uh, the, the road closures uh, earlier on this morning, or in fact the whole of the day in Bray Park, either as uh, one of the local businesses or as, uh, as just a citizen, uh, you know, someone who lives in the community, and you want to share your thoughts 01582481822077948182 I could totally concur with Sister Shazia's uh, observations and her viewpoint which is better safe than sorry and the police had to undertake you know the due uh, due process to ensure the safety of everyone before they actually reopen that and unfortunately it has taken the whole of the day uh, today uh, before they've been able to open up the roads but the roads are now open alhamdulillah and I can say great it's good news that 
fact that whatever that suspicious uh, package uh, or uh, you know uh, item was is now being declared safe uh, and uh, you know it's business as usual Right, so I believe we're going to move on to our lead story, and and that is the the U.S. Uh, and Afghanistan uh, deal, the peace deal that was signed after or, or almost ending an 18-stroke 19-year war in Afghanistan. Right, so this was very interesting news earlier this week when, of course, this uh, ceremony was held in Qatar, uh, and uh, of course there was a number of dignitaries that were invited uh, or a number of individuals that were invited in to this ceremony from Russia, China, Qatar, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, Pakistan's Foreign Minister Shah Mahmoud Qureshi, all gathered together on February the 29th, uh, okay, uh, to sign this particular deal. Uh, you signed, the deal was signed by U.S. Special Envoy Zalmay Khalizad and uh, Taliban political chief Mullah Abdul Ghani Baradar uh, with Pompeo as a witness, right? A uh, number of things that the deal uh, seeks to achieve. I, I think we're trying to line up our, our guests who are going to be the more experts that are going to be providing some analysis on this particular subject. Uh, but first, one th- after after the first 135 days of the deal, the U.S. will reduce its troops. Uh, there will also be a full, apparently a full withdrawal of all U.S. and coalition forces would occur within 14 months. Uh, and there's going to be, an, you know, an exchange of, of prisoners and, and, and so on and so forth, right? So so a number of things there that are being promised, that are being pledged. Let's see uh, whether this turns into reality or not, because already analysts and commentators are saying the U.S.-Taliban peace deal is a road to nowhere, right? And in fact, the Afghan conflict, U.S. conducts first airstrike on Taliban since deal already since the deal has been signed. So doesn't they look like things are going in the right direction? Let's get a, let's get the view from America first. Here we got Muhammad Atif. On the call, Muhammad Atif, of course, is uh, from the Voice of America. Assalamualaikum, uh, brother Muhammad Atif, and Jazakallah for joining us on Friday Night Live. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Great, uh, Muhammad Atif. A, a lot of people will be asking this question. I mean, is this uh, you know after 19, 18 or nineteen years of war between America, which is arguably in the world today one of the you know the, the world's strongest you know country in the world, uh, you know that that's been fighting a war against the world's almost weakest country in the in the world, and it's taken them nineteen years to come to uh, you know to to say you know to come to a conclusion of of this war. Uh, many people, many commentators are are, are interpreting. You know, this as a loss for America uh, after 19 years. Well, what's your view? What's the American view on this deal being signed? Um, The views are mixed. Mm. First off, Americans are also tired of this war. Yeah. And there were no results. After 19 years, there is no result. Afghanistan is still fighting a civil war sort of thing. Yes, mm. we can say that on the uh, on the on the end of terrorism, America fought off Al Qaeda successfully. America also fought off ISIS successfully, but they could not figure out how to deal with Taliban. And Taliban, mind you, are Afghans. Mm. They claim that it was their government, it is their country, and they're fighting a foreign enemy in Afghanistan. So when it comes to that. The Afghans are also divided. You know, half of the country is being ruled by the government of President Ashraf Ghani, that is 
obviously supported by NATO partners, America and the Western world. Yeah. Half of the Afghanistan was under control of the Taliban. So there, you, you can see that, you know, mm. there, there is no solution. So, Either America goes and mm. bomb all the Taliban, that's not going to happen. That should yeah. never, ever, ever happen. Right. So uh, on, on your question that, you know, um, maybe it's not a win and it's a defeat for America, people mm. have raised this question as well and right. this concern as well, that the world's strongest military could not defeat guerrilla fighters. Right. And that's the issue, right. guerrilla fighters. M- they were not M- an army, they were not Yes, yeah, Mohammed, I've, I've got Abu Isra on, on, on the call also. Abu Isra is a, a political commentator and specializes in, in, the, in, the, in the kind of Afghan-Pakistan uh, you know, uh, uh, p- politics. Uh, Abu Isra, we're, we're discussing uh, with Mohammed Atif from the United States. Uh, it's taken 19 years for, for the U.S. in Afghanistan. The, the world's strongest nation versus arguably the world's weakest nation. Is this an acknowledgement of the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan? Or, you know, uh, uh, was the initial military objectives achieved long time ago? Well, the way I see it, uh, Americans had certain objectives before they uh, launched this war in October 2001. Uh, the question is whether they uh, whether they achieved their objectives or not after 19 years and spending trillion plus dollars and getting 4,000 plus of their own soldiers killed and many, many th- uh, more thousands injured. So what were the objectives? I think we need to understand. And then against that, we can uh, then judge whether uh, they they won or lost. I mean, uh, there were a number of things. One, of course, was a presence in this region, a permanent sort of basis, um, uh, thereby uh, controlling the region. So they had, for example, an emerging China on one side. And uh, Central Asia was quite highly uh, destabilized with the rise of ideological Islam in places like Uzbekistan and in this region. Hmm. So there was a real threat that this region c- could basically become uh, a, a, an area where a, 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 an alternative to the Soviet sort of a uh, um, uh, Soviet uh, state like power right. emerging, yeah. a Muslim power emerging, a Muslim state emerging. So they had a number of objectives. Right. After 19 years, we, it, is, it is blatantly obvious to any political uh, geopolitical analyst that America has been defeated, but what they uh, militarily they have been defeated. But what they want to achieve now is mm. uh, to bring Taliban onto a, uh, a negotiating table and thereby uh, engaging them into a localized politics, eventually which will be controlled by the Americans uh, yeah. remotely. Mm. Uh, and so, hence, they, they I think they have managed to secure. Uh, some something from from so they have managed to salvage something from this defeat. To be honest, yeah. Uh, but that was a few days ago. I mean, obviously, since then we know that this peace deal has not lasted much, yeah. uh, that much. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Mohammed Artif, in terms of the timing, of course, I mean, is 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 quite key, isn't it? I mean, America's got elections around the corner, uh, and and many analysts are again are pointing their finger towards you know you know uh, Trump being in a hurry to sign this deal and be able to showcase it. Precisely for his inner, you know, political gains, as opposed to Taliban, uh, you know, have now come uh, come around this idea of peace, or, or somehow all the pieces are falling into place, and this is the ideal time, you know, for for, for signing a peace deal. It, it looks like more political gains and points to be scored for Trump administration than actually uh, there is on the ground in terms of real legitimate peace. Um. You know, the the efforts for peace in Afghanistan are not recent. Um, If I may remind everybody that uh, when the trilateral dialogue started, 
there was a meeting that was going to be held in Murray uh, next to Islamabad. That yeah. was 2015 when the news of Mullah Omar's death was made public. So the efforts to bring peace in Afghanistan did not start last year or after President Trump got elected into presidency. These efforts have been going for a very long time, and Taliban have had an office in Qatar for a very long time. But when it comes to American politics, yes, all presidents want something to present to their voter base. Mm. President Obama, when he got elected for the first uh, term, he, wanted to pro he promised that he's going to end the Iraq war. So yeah. war is a big thing. Sure. Uh, you know, the economy has invested, as your guest said, over $3 trillion in Afghanistan. So yeah. that's a big thing, yes. Uh, uh, it, I mean, it, it might help President Trump. Yeah. But let me, let me complete my thought. Okay, go on. Secondly, um, a lot of anti-American world is seeing this deal as a defeat to America. Hmm. They can see it as a defeat to America, uh, there's still a, a sentiment that, you know, America is going to do something to remain uh, their bases there or their military there. No, that's not going to happen. If you read the agreement, there's timeline, there are deadlines. If everything goes well, everything's going to happen. Now, it comes to President Ghani and Taliban. Uh, just, 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 hang, just, hang, just hang on there, Mohammed Atif, if, if, if I may. You just, just hang on there because we don't have much time. I want to go into a couple of other points. The point here is, Abu Isra, right? A lot of money has been invested by America. Trillions we're talking about. In 19 years, America has persisted in Afghanistan without any clear you know, result and, and an outcome, right? And, and it's, it's, it's suffered on, on a number of different you know, areas. So there, there, are, there is definitely a bigger geopolitical you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, what, what is it, you know, prize here for America at stake that, you know, that's been prepared to go all the way. So it's not going to simply just pull out its troops and, and just pack its bags and, and leave that region, is it? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, there, there will be uh, there will be disasters on U.S. part. I mean, so hence what they're trying to do now is to salvage um, for this situation. And and I, I um, with all due respect, I don't agree with the with my uh, collocator on uh, on the point that Americans uh, troops will withdraw um, eventually. Although it's been mentioned in the agreement, but we know what happened to this agreement already. Now it didn't it didn't even last uh, a week. This peace deal, the so-called peace deal. So the idea was that they will uh, station there around 8,600 troops in Kabul, yeah. whether in the uh, under the guise of. Uh, military personnel or contractors, but Americans will definitely most 100% uh, would like to keep their forces in Kabul. They will consist cons continuously uh, uh, try to direct the affairs in in Kabul through the, the, the through the people they have installed uh, over the years. I mean, mm. you know, from, starting from Hamid Karzai to to the pre present. Uh, 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 leader Ashraf Ghani, who was basically parachuted from from the United States, a professor in in, in U.S. Uh, university. So so basically, uh, they, they 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 will not give up that mm. easily. I mean, they have invested heavily in this, yeah. and their 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 plan is to. Uh, keep some sort of presence in, uh, uh, in Kabul. Uh, uh, Mohammed Atif, I, I know you don't have much time, so a last quick question for you. It, 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 which is the U.S. troops? I mean, globally, or, or you know, or you you pick a region in in the world where you know, and and the U.S. troops and bases are there. So the the, the U.S. I mean, even though it's actually trying to sell this, you know, to its internal public, domestic consumption, that the U.S. troops are finally coming home. Time to bring back our people home. The reality is that there will be, and I've got statistics here, at least five thousand 
thousand U.S. troops, okay, will leave Afghanistan, but a number of, of U.S. troops will remain in Afghanistan, and of course that's uh, the geopolitical interest of America globally to re you know re retain its you know key you know positions and, and military around the world. Well, the bases, the U.S. bases around the world, they're not fighting wars. In Afghanistan, the U.S. military is fighting a war. So it's it's different than having a base and then having your troops fighting mm -hmm. a war. So let's let's just be clear on that. Secondly, the agreement says by 2021, May 2021, all of the U.S. troops would be out. If that condition is not met, if that condition was not there, there would be no peace agreement between Taliban and the U.S. forces in the first place. So you have to understand what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know. What's right. going to happen a month later? I don't know. But if we look at the agreement, yes, as your uh, other guest has said, that, you know, uh, the peace deal is uh, already gone with mm. Taliban fighting the Afghan troops and U.S. troops uh, retaliating and fighting uh, and, uh, you know, uh, attacking the Taliban. Yes, mm. but after that, Mullah Brother had a phone call with President Trump. After that, Zalmi Khadizad met Mullah Brother. So it's not that, okay, sure. here we signed the agreement, now we're attacking each other, right. and no more communication. No, All right. there is communication. There okay. would be some results. Okay, all right. Abu Israel, let's talk about the geopolitics, right? Let's talk about Pakistan, because Pakistan's been quite instrumental in, in, in the back, backdoor diplomacy, in getting a, a Taliban onto the table, you know, kind of, you know, forcing some of the, these conversations and these in these dialogues to, to take place and negotiations. What's... what's What's driving, you know, what's what's this compelling? What's the compelling factor to get Taliban onto the table, a negotiation table? What's the interest of Pakistan in, in all of this? And, and of course, India is not happy with the stable Afghanistan at all. Or, or, uh, at all, anyway. So explain to our listeners what's the bigger picture here? What's the what's the gain? Who who's who are the main gainers and who are the ones who are you know likely to lose here? Well, I mean. Um, if we, if I have to be a little bit blunt here, I mean Pakistan, uh, as we know, for the last almost six plus decades, have been quite uh, close, uh, uh, orbiting quite close to U.S. Uh, sphere of influence. Um, so, ultimately, why Pakistan played this particular role in getting Taliban um, to to have dialogue and then this peace deal with the with the U.S. Um, it, it's it it is uh, that sort of client-state uh, type uh, relationship that Pakistan has with the Americans, and they were used as the facilitators in this process. Um, so, uh, w w what are the uh, implications for Pakistan? I mean, you know, may maybe some further aid uh, from Americans in 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 response to offering the, the services that Pakistan has offered. Don't forget that Pakistan has been. Pakistan has offered all kinds of services to the U.S. in the last uh, 19 mm -hmm. years, from the NATO supply line that goes through mm -hmm. Pakistan, uh, from uh, providing our air bases uh, in Jakarta and Shamsi, uh, when, where the, drone, uh, uh, the, the, the drones were flying from Pakistani air bases and they were attacking within Pakistan. Uh, and so all sorts of services have been rendered to, to right. the United States. So, 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 so that, yeah. that's Pakistan. I, I get that, right? So Pakistan's obviously, mm. obviously doing it for, for two almost reasons. One is obviously the, the, the political economic interest from, from the states. And then also yeah. having a stable Afghanistan is in the interest of, I guess, Pakistan, right? As opposed to India, because a lot of commentators are right. And of course, that India is not too happy with a, a more 
of a stable Afghanistan. It's in its interest to have a destabilized Afghanistan, right? What What about internally when the Afghanistan or this this struggle between the Taliban and of course the pro-U.S. government that's been put in there uh, by by the U.S. What, what What's the dynamics there? Well, I mean, uh, the Taliban were quite uh, um, clear in, in their stance for many, many years. They never recognized uh, any right. installed government in, in Kabul, from Hamid Karzai times to uh, Ashraf Ghani's time, and all, the, all these Abdullah Abdullahs and, uh, and the rest of the mm. teams. Uh, Taliban never recognized them. Uh, they, they were, it was fairly obvious to Taliban and the, and the rest of the region that these were governments installed by uh, by the uh, occupying occupying force. So, uh, but, 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 what, but, but what is the, yeah. what is this then that now Taliban are coming to the negotiating table, uh, signing on in this deal? Isn't that then just you know uh, you know a capitulation after 18, 19 years of, of of a struggle? Is that is that how you're reading it? Well, it, this is exactly how I am reading it because it mm. it is just beggars belief that uh, once you have almost uh, uh, you were almost there as Taliban, uh, almost destroying. Not destroying literally, but I mean, you know, defeating a a superpower. I mm. mean, you know, and they uh, and uh, why when uh, you had the opportunity to to basically not, um, uh, you know, take on their demands mm. when you were you had a full upper hand. Yeah. I mean, you know, it beggars belief that you have uh, gone into these type of peace right. and all that when you have almost have a victory in your sight now, right. a complete victory. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I- Abu Isra, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I would love to, to no. continue conversation, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. Thank you very much for, for joining us this evening Thank and you. shedding some light on this issue. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay, listeners, that was Abu Isra. And earlier, we had Muhammad Atif. Unfortunately, we lost Muhammad Atif, Voice of America. But Thank you very much for your time this evening, Muhammad Atif. Uh, and we were discussing the, the US, uh, US and Taliban deal that was signed earlier after 18 or 19 years of war in Afghanistan. I want to get your thoughts on this particular story. 01582481822 We're going to go into a commercial break. When we come back, we're going to be discussing Syria and Turkey. Don't go away. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum, this is Atif Nawaz. Listen to Inspire FM shows in your time by heading over to inspirefm.org or listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Friday Night Live with me, Hafi Shaban, on this Friday, the 6th of March evening, early evening. It is now 6 just gone past 6 30 pm, uh, and we have just finished the first half an hour of the show. Uh, just been discussing, uh, getting an update on the. Uh, on the U.S. and Taliban uh, peace deal that was signed earlier in the week, uh, ending uh, well, apparently ending a 19-year war in Afghanistan. Now I tell you what is it really, really incredible. Subhanallah! I remember this back in 2001, 2001 when it all started. You know, it was it was actually coined as the world's you know strongest, mightiest right country in the world, power in the world, fighting the world's weakest. 
and 19 years on we're still discussing it isn't that incredible what's been going on there right so the, we, we, we've, we've been discussing with a few uh, political commentators and, and analysts and trying to get their view in terms of what's prompted America to come onto the negotiating table of course they've been discussing for many many years uh, but recently they've obviously signed this historic deal and they have made a lot of press about it so that's what we were discussing first half an hour earlier also we had sister Shazia who gave us an update in terms of the situation in Bury Park here in Luton and the closure of Bury Park earlier this morning well the whole day today and what was happening uh, what was the reason behind that all right, we're going to move on to our next story. Next story also involves international politics. In, in involves international, you know, manoeuvrings and political, you know, actions uh, between Muslim nations. It's, it's unfortunate we're finding Muslim nations, you know, at odds with one another. Not surprising, you may say, but in this particular case, right? Uh, I, I want to we, we want to discuss a Turkey and the Syrian uh, clashes, right? That have been going on for a while, for a number of years. We know on the border, of course, Turkey and share a, border, a very long border and, and the clashes of course have been going on for some time recently a lot of fatalities have been you know been occurred or incurred on both sides rather should I say uh, and of course at the center point of a lot of these clashes is Idlib and the region which is obviously still one of those regions that is not in the hands of uh, the the pro uh, you know Assad uh, government forces but of course in the hand of the anti uh, you know Assad uh, forces so so a lot going on there uh, and a lot of you know you know uh, casualties on both sides of things right uh, and of course just um, recently uh, another ceasefire another ceasefire in Idlib has been declared between Russia and Turkey and this is one of those ceasefires that, that has been announced previously on many occasions so I want to try to get some some context to all of this, this uh, all of this going on and understand what's happening well let's speak to some experts and to try to put some let, try to shed some light in terms of what's happening uh, in the region what is the latest status from Idlib uh, and, and the border regions. We've got Dr. Afzal Ashraf, who's the Assistant Professor of International Relations and Security at the, Not uh, the University of Nottingham, here locally. Uh, and we've got Hassan Abdullah, who's the Diplomatic Correspondent at TRT World. I want to I welcome both gentlemen to Friday Night Live and Inspire FM this evening. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this evening on the show. I want to go straight to you, uh, Hassan Abdullah, firstly. Uh, based out in Turkey, I understand. Well, what is the latest status, uh, Hassan Abdullah, on the these, you know, cross-border conflicts between Turkey and Syria, and what's at stake? Well, after the ceasefire kicked in at midnight local time in Syria, uh, there were initially a couple of um, violations um, by the Assad regime, it seems, uh, in which they did uh, make some advances towards um, the areas that had been declared uh, under the Sochi Agreement. You know, they were not supposed to go past those areas. But after that, uh, things did sort of die down a bit. Um, at this point in time, it's a rather quiet. Um, of course, if you were to compare it to the last few days, uh, we haven't been witnessing the sort of aerial campaigns that we've been seeing from the Assad regime as well as from the Russians. Right. So, so Hassan, tell me, what's the bigger picture here, right? So, we've, we, you know, around 60 Turkish soldiers have been killed earlier. I don't know what the late, you know, in terms of the government offensive on, on Idlib, right? Uh, and then, you know, we, we, a number of Syrian troops have, have been killed. This is cross-fighting between Turkey and Syria. Is the is the is the main prize here that's been fought over Idlib or over and beyond that? 
Well, let's remember that Idlib is the last remaining stronghold of the opposition forces. Yeah. Um, the previous de-escalation zones that had been agreed upon, uh, they were violated. Uh, there were mass migrations, not just of the uh, ordinary people, but also uh, the opposition fighters. They had moved out from um, various areas. So, of course, at this point in time, it's a case of survival as far as the opposition groups are concerned. Um, now, after Turkey launched a military operation in Idlib, that did provide some breathing space to the opposition groups, and they did sort of try to consolidate some of the territory they had lost. Um, but as a result of the ceasefire, it seems what's going to happen is that uh, the Assad regime is going to uh, perhaps regroup. Also, the, um, the sectarian militia groups supporting the Assad regime, uh, they will probably regroup. And many of the opposition groups aren't actually uh, very happy about this ceasefire because they feel that they're going to lose the momentum uh, that, that had been building up. Remember, they had been moving towards areas like Saraqib, uh, oh. about 15 kilometers to the east of Idlib city. Mm. So some of the opposition groups aren't exactly very happy about this. Right. All right. Let me bring in Dr. Afzal Ashraf, uh, joining us from the University of Nottingham, of course, uh, International Relations Assistant Professor in International Relations. Uh, Dr. Afzal, uh, th- thank you very much for joining us this evening. W- w- you know, I don't know to what extent you've been following this region and, and the events between Turkey and Syria. What's the bigger... You know, the, the the bigger prize here at stake. I mean, of course, Turkey's venturing into, not venturing into, but physically in Syria here when we're talking about Idlib and the Idlib province. Uh, what, 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 what's what's Turkey's ambitions here? Is it to, you know, contr- you know, kind of border this, you know, police this border region? Is it to neutralize it against, you know, the Kurdish, you know, kind of rebels in, in that area? Is it to actually expand its own nation state and, 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 and annex the, this the northern part of Syria? What's the bigger game here from a Turkish Turkish perspective? The bigger game here is um, uh, the difference between stability and instability in the region and the difference between short-term gains and long-term gains. Uh, What we've got here is uh, Turkey uh, that uh, has uh, seen an opportunity when the United States, which was backing Kurdish forces Mm. as an opposition to the Assad regime because the the aim has always been uh, to have regime change. Uh, when the U.S. gave up on that idea, the, the uh, Kurdish forces represented a potential threat to Turkey. And Turkey wanted to ensure that this region, which was bordering its territory, uh, didn't fall into the hands of the Kurdish uh, opposition. Now, the problem there is that um, what uh, the Turkish... Um, military or Turkish government is doing is exactly what the Americans have done and what others are doing, and that is to use irregular forces to augment its own military. So they're using what they call opposition forces, mm. but some of these are um, terrorist groups, they're extremist groups with operating under different names. There are up to 200 that I once counted. And so what we've got is a, a, a basically controlled anarchy. And this particular crisis has arisen because there has been a breakdown of communication between uh, the Turkish military and the, uh, the, the Russians who are controlling uh, the airspace uh, and much of the, the ground fighting. And I think that uh, one of the lessons that um, the Turks have learned from this is that they need to coordinate their activities better with the mm. Russians. Mm. But also what they, I think, ought to learn, and there's no evidence here, that they have to come to terms with the fact that they cannot have 
a military solution, particularly a solution uh, using irregular forces, that they do need a political solution. And quite frankly, the only really um, durable and sustainable solution in the long term is to do what the UN said in one of its recent uh, resolutions, and that is to restore the sovereignty of um, the, the Syrian state over its own territory. Right. And I think that until they come to that conclusion, we are going to see this crisis leading to another crisis, mm. to another crisis, and we'll just see a change in crisis right. rather than a solution. So, so, so we'll, we'll go to Hassan uh, Abdullah in a short while to get the Turkish perspective. But, but Dr. Afzal Ashraf, if I may, let's delve a, a little in, into, the, into the Kurds and, and, and what's driving the Kurds, because from the map that I've got in front of me, the geopolitical map, okay, they, they, they've got this, the Gerablus and the kind of a, the east, northeast region of of Syria is where they prominently you know seem to be as to have a you know a stronghold and then you've got you know in terms of Idlib you've got the of course of course the numerous forces and then you've got the Turkish backed Syrian you know kind of uh, and the Turkish military in in the far north the the Afrin kind of region in the area so who's supporting uh, the Kurds or in terms of geopolitically and militarily in 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 the in in the region is is it America or is it a combination of America plus Iran stroke uh, Syria against Turkey here okay so the first thing to remember is that the Kurdish people are a, a very large and diverse population and mm. what we're talking about is not to the Kurdish people or even a, a particular t Kurdish or a, a group of Kurdish factions. What we're talking about here is a, a, a group called the YPG which is part of a, an organization called PKK and the yeah. PKK has been a designated a terrorist organization according to the US and the UK. The, the ideology of this organization is primarily a sort of socialist ideology. Yeah. And for that reason, uh, it appeals, uh, strangely enough, to the Russians uh, because of their sort of social socialist background. But up to recently, the, the YPG has been supported and been used as an instrument of um, military and political operations by the USA and its coalition. Um, and what happened is that uh, whilst they did achieve a great deal of success on the ground, uh, they weren't able to push forward and achieve the, the objective, which was regime change. And um, Mr. Trump decided enough was enough and that he was going to withdraw. So what that did was leave the Kurds without a backer. And mm. what um, is difficult to, for me to determine uh, uh, maybe your other guests might be able to throw some light on it. Uh, there were uh, moves for, for the Kurds to try and uh, do an alliance with um, President uh, Assad's regime because they feared uh, uh, the Turks more than they feared the regime. Now, I don't know what became of that. Mm. Because, um, news isn't very clear uh, out of that region. Anyway, they are left um, uh, dangling, so okay. to speak. Um, okay. They are not with any official backer, and and it is to keep them away from the borders of Turkey that the Turks are primarily uh, conducting the operations near Idlib. All right, all right, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, and uh, Hassan Abdullah, if I may come to you. 
Okay, I, it's interesting what Dr. Afzal Ashraf has just said with regards to really trying to achieve long-term gains uh, and uh, stability in the region. And it's a very interesting point, actually, because you know, Turkey's been fighting uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a so-called you know, guerrilla war or a, a civil war or an outright war, war against the, the, Kurd, the Kurdish you know, uh, rebellion, this YPG or the PKK or whatever the you know, per, you know, permeation is taken or the form that is taken for a long time. Is it time for you know, Turkey to actually reconsider how does it act as a melting pot for different people of different ethnicities? I mean, it's interesting because 1924, Turkish, you know, it was in, in this month of Rajab that, you know, the Ottoman Empire was actually, you know, officially abolished. And, and under the Ottoman Empire, all of these different ethnicities, you know, acted as a melting pot and lived together quite harmoniously. It's, it's interesting that how in the current, you know, secular uh, framework, is, is unable to address and, and you know actually absorb its different you know ethnicities and and people of different backgrounds. Uh, well, you're right about the point um, as far as the Ottoman Empire is concerned. Uh, during that time, uh, you can argue that uh, the level of tolerance, uh, you know, pertaining to different ethnicities was very high, mm. and not just Muslim um, groups, but even non-Muslim groups. You know, many Jews were living under the Ottoman Empire uh, without really having any substantial problems and so forth. Uh, so that point is correct. Uh, after the secularization um, of Turkey, the forced secularization, uh, what we did witness was the rise of certain secular ideologies um, that, quite frankly, had a rather a racist and discriminatory attitude uh, towards the Kurdish groups. But after the, uh, but you know, if you're speaking in relative terms, hmm. um, after the uh, the ruling Ak Party came into power. Um, you know, there were a number of changes that were introduced. Uh, for example, let's not forget that there were restrictions on even the Kurdish language, um, you know, use of the Kurdish language or teaching the Kurdish language, uh, various other restrictions. So you've got basically a whole generation of Kurds in Turkey who cannot even speak Kurdish. Mm. Uh, so those things have changed. But, um, you know, uh, it wasn't any sort of... Um, uh, Islamic-driven changes as such. Sure. Uh, you know, they were done under the banner of liberalism. Uh, in terms of rights, um, the, the sort of liberalization in Turkey that we witnessed post-2002. Right. I, I, I uh, get that, that Hassan, but, but what, what, what is yeah, the bigger... No, I, think, I think it's important to set the record. Okay, go on. You know, yeah. No, no, it's fine. fine. So, so, yeah, you know, there's a lot of relativism that would come in here. Mm. So that's the point. So at this point in time... Um, you know, there is, it's a very detailed topic, but you've got different political groups in Turkey, you've got different political ideologies. Uh, so, you know, if you were to compare, let's say, the AKP to a party like the E-Party or the MHP, uh, their approach towards the, the Kurds and what's sometimes referred to as the Kurdish problem is quite different. Right. So, you know, it's probably unfair to just paint everything with the same Fine, body. fine. But, but the question fundamentally, uh, Brother Hassan, is... How does, you know, you know, Turkey, I'm sure, just like many other nations around the world, you know, wants a peace, wants, you know, a stability, right? And, and it wants to hopefully absorb and, and, you know, integrate, you know, the, the different, you know, er, you know, different ethnicities and people from different backgrounds and, 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 and you know, whatever you know, whatever they're from. The point here is, is it going to achieve that peace militarily uh, and the way it is going about its business at the moment? Or is it going to be by, you know what, understanding these, I understand the complexities, but understanding these, you know, these different peoples, understanding what their, their maybe, you know, I don't know, what their political ambitions are and trying to, you know, come to some kind of a middle ground and, and some kind of an, an agreement, you know, something similar to, to, to the levels that you had during the Ottoman uh, Empire, kind of. Uh, that, that's the way I'm looking at it. Maybe I, too idealistic, mm -hmm. but, but you tell me. 
Well, uh, first of all, you know, it, it's going to be a combination of hard power and soft power when it comes right. to any problems. Mm. Um, you know, in the past, let's not forget that if you're talking about the context, in the context of the PKK, uh, there have been uh, talks between the two. There have been, uh, you know, between the Turkish uh, establishment and the PKK, there have been agreements, there has been ceasefire in the past. So there's a long history mm. of how things have unfolded. Now, the problem of comparing it with the Ottoman times is, you know, the Fundamentally, the structure has changed. Right. Um, the, the very thought process has changed. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're comparing um, a, a system that you can say was inspired by mm. Islamic thought to an extent, comparing it to that to the present Westphalian system. Yeah. I think it's very unfair because right. uh, you know you probably have to do like a series of programs on this. Correct. Um, if you Correct. want to really go deep into it, yeah. the, the Islamic ideology is very different from. You know, the secular, secular nationalist right, right, I, national I get you. I get so you. Obviously, uh, for example, if, if you're talking about an Islamic structure, you're not going to have, uh, in, under a proper Islamic system, problems of racism or Correct. problems yeah. of, you know, such uh, nationalistic right. sort of issues. Yeah. You're not going to have that. Yeah. So I think it's probably unfair to Fine. compare apples and oranges. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that point, right? Which then leads me nicely on to my next question. Now, let me go back to Dr. Afzal then, uh, because based upon what you're telling me, uh, if, if it is the, the, the norm now, the, the nation states, the, the, the ethnicities, you know, the nation, you know, and these national and patriotic kind of, you know, political ambitions of all of these different ethnicities to have their own so-called self-autonomous kind of regions, then what America in essence, in essence has done is pulled itself out and left political anarchy there amongst these different factions and let them just fight it out and you know what they're going to be continuing fighting on for, for, for decades just like we see in a lot of other regions around the world where Britain did exactly the same it's, it's just exactly the same what America's just done there between Turkey and Syria we're going to just see this going on for a number of years to come Dr. Avzal do, do you kind of follow that script or, or subscribe to that view or do, do, do you think else uh, uh, do you think otherwise well, I, I, I think that um, to help answer your question, we need to just go back. Uh, you've had a discussion, very interesting one, about uh, the Ottoman period. But in my opinion, the, uh, the organizations that we're talking about, the PKK, etc., were greatly helped during the Cold War. Um, what um, the, the Russians did uh, with the, uh, the Kurds in uh, Turkey and indeed in Iraq, where you had the PUK and the KDP, was to do what the Americans were also doing, was to empower those groups that were um, ethnically diverse to cause a problem for the, the host nations. And Turkey, of course, was in the front line. It's one of the few countries that is a member of NATO and is borders with uh, Russia directly. And so what we have are these organizations, most of which um, uh, had a socialist ideology, which empowered. And of course, that um, backing has long gone, but they have now got a momentum on their own. They have a culture, a political culture and a military culture, which is revolutionary, uh, which is about using uh, subversive power to gain their independence. Now, mm. the, the fact is you have a nation where the Kurds describe themselves as a nation, the largest nation without a state, and uh, those, that nation is spread over several countries, Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And so there is a need for a long-term solution which may come about as the KRG, the, uh, the, the, the Kurdish regional government in Iraq, seems to be bringing about a model of sort of semi-autonomous nature uh, where it, 
it can be part of a state but have a degree of semi-autonomy uh, as, as a nation. So there are political models out there. Mm. What, what there needs to be is uh, a, an understanding from all concerned that the modus operandi that has been um, uh, adopted by the U.S. and other great nations is no longer valid. I mean, forget the ethical argument. It is way past its sell-by date. No regime change, uh, operational war has been successful. No use of proxy warfare using these um, irregular groups has been successful mm. in the last uh, over quarter of a century, a third of a century. All of the wars that these the big states have been playing, have failed. So it's time for everybody, including the, the, the regional countries and the, 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 the states or nations like the Kurds, to understand that they have political problems and these problems can be more, more successfully achieved through negotiation and political processes using violence only weakens everybody in the region. It hasn't uh, achieved any success mm. apart from individuals who benefit from the, the corruption and other things that a, a violent breakdown in society brings. The vast majority of people suffering has continued and is, is accelerated. So the solution lies in recognizing that we need a change of global political systems and that change doesn't need to be led by a global power. It can be led by small nations and by small groups and just think about their long-term benefits and their long-term security and their long-term prosperity. Right. In the case of Turkey, lies with peace and uh, prosperity of its people, right. including the Kurds, and of its neighbours, including Syria. Right, Dr. Abdul Ashraf, I was going to ask you for a concluding statement, but I think you've already made it. So, so thank you very much for, for, for joining us this evening, uh, Assistant Professor at the University of Nottingham of International Relations. Thank you very much, Dr. Abdul Ashraf, for, for really adding that uh, expertise, uh, you know, insight into, into that issue. Uh, Hassan Abdullah, just, just for, I'm going to come to you for your concluding uh, remarks, and uh, we've got about two minutes remaining. Uh, um, you, you know, I mean, Syria is, is what, what is it, nine years now in, 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 into the conflict? Uh, you know, uh, of course, there's been a, a number of casualties recently on, on both sides in terms of Turkey and, and, and Syria. I mean, w what is the appetite? I mean, I, I guess it's an obvious question that, of course, there's going to be a lot of patriotism and a lot of nationalism and a lot of national, you know, political point scoring at stake to actually, you know, stand the ground and continue and show a hard front in terms of defending its, its borders. But it's, is it really achieving success and is that the long-term strategic, strategic direction that Turkey wants to take when it comes to its relationship with, with, with Syria? What do you think? What is the political appetite on the ground and how do we resolve this current kind of crisis that we've got between Syria and Turkey, Hassan, uh, in, in one minute, if you may? Well, you've raised some very good questions there. Um, I think, first of all, uh, there needs to be clarity about what the long-term objectives are, because unfortunately what happens in this uh, in, in democratic system, uh, I think one of, this is one of the downsides of democracy, is that uh, it turns the leaders uh, very short-sighted. Sometimes, you know, it's about um, electoral gains, and uh, they're not sort of looking at the very long-term objectives. Uh, so that, that's a fundamental structural problem, in my view. 
Um, regarding Syria, of course, Turkey says that pragmatically speaking, uh, it's about its security concerns. You know, the YPG creating a canton in the north of Syria and using it as a launch pad to provide support to the PKK in Turkey. So, you know, Turkey says it's about um, ensuring its security. But again... Um, Hassan, you've got 30 seconds. To, right. You have to clearly define the long-term objectives and then go from there. Then you have to strategize accordingly. At the moment, as I said, there's a structural problem with democracy. Hmm. And do you think that the appetite in Turkey is to continue, uh, just stay, stay firm in its current course, or do you think it's going to be a, a change of uh, tactic and a change of strategy very quickly? Um, I think they will continue on this current course at the moment. But right. very briefly, I think the Muslim world is suffering from cognitive dissonance. Right. Okay, uh, Dr. Afzal Ashraf and Hassan Abdullah, it was actually a pleasure talking to you. Great expertise, insight into, into the issue. And I would love to talk to you, but unfortunately, you've got to go into a commercial break and continue with the next stories. Thank you very much, gents, for this joining us this evening. Okay, that was uh, Dr. Afzal Ashraf and that was Hassan Abdullah uh, from uh, TIT World and University of Nottingham. We were discussing the, the Syria-Turkish political dynamics. Uh, we're going to go into a commercial break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes when we will continue with the show. Don't go away and do join me in a couple of minutes. Until then, assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. This is Atif Nawaz and you're listening to an Inspire FM podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to Friday Night Live. And subhanAllah, one hour of the show has already gone by. There, there, there is an internal debate. Let, let me share an internal debate with you. Some people say that Friday Night Live should be one hour show. And as opposed to the two hour regular slot that we have. And subhanAllah, the first hour of the show has already gone by. And we, I, I haven't even noticed it, right? So, you know, more for the argument that we need two hour solid discussion and, and conversations. Uh, and we need to be sharing this with, with our listeners. So we need our listeners to also get involved, to also share their thoughts on the stories that we're covering. I want to say Jazakallah for Hamza Atik who has actually messaged in with regards to my comment earlier. And that was with regards to the US versus the Taliban. And it was coined as the world's strongest nation versus the world's weakest nation. And of course, that is not necessarily true at all. So he says in his WhatsApp message, world's strongest question mark. Hmm. I don't know about that. And indeed, that's exactly what's been demonstrated. It's not about how, what your, your military might is, is it? It's not about military might always. It's about, you know, a lot of other factors. Ideological might, psychological might. And we've seen here that after 18, 19 years, America is decided. And in fact, long time ago, America was ready to pull the plug and get out of there. But it needs to have some kind of face. It needs to hold some kind of face, save some kind of face before it can pull out, pull out. And that's exactly what it's done, Hamza. So let me know what your thoughts are. I don't literally mean that it is the world's strongest, but that is what the world considers it considers it to be right and then uh, subhanallah we were discussing turkey syria clashes and, and and getting a fantastic political analysis by dr afzal ashraf who's an assistant professor of international relations at the university of nottingham and hassan abdullah who's a diplomatic correspondent at trt world out in turkey great insight by the two gentlemen very very professional fantastic insight and you know what i really liked hassan abdullah's comment really liked hassan abdullah's comment i liked his view on the ottoman empire you might 
might not, you might not find it surprising. Uh, but I tell you an, an, another very interesting comment Hassan Abdullah makes, right? And I want to get your view on this particular issue, right? But on this particular comment, he said the the fundamental problem or one of the problems or one of the flaws with democracy is it's all about short-term gain. It's all about short-term gain. And a lot of these leaders come in and they are exactly looking at what is the short-term gain that we can get as a political party in our four years to ensure that they to ensure that we're then voted in again. So they're not looking at the long-term strategic goal of a nation. They're looking at a short-term gain and their own political gain. And of course, that political gain is often sponsored by the capitalists who invest all of the money. What do you think? Democracy fundamentally flawed? Do you agree with Abdullah Hassan or Hassan Abdullah's comments or disagree with it? 01582. 01582481822. Who's gonna call in and speak to me live here on Friday Night Live? Or you can send me your SMS or your WhatsApp message. Do you agree or disagree? 07779481822. Right, time to move on to uh, what is the lineup for the next hour. The lineup for the next hour, very quickly, we're going to be discussing with a, with, with a very interesting initiative that's happening in Luton. Uh, some local news we're going to be covering for the next half an hour. Uh, so, uh, Luton groups come together to make anti knife crime art displays. So, that's an interesting story. We thought we'll cover that. So, we're going to be covering that for about five to ten minutes, inshallah. And then we've got some very positive news, uh, very positive announcements that's come out from Olive Tree Primary School. Uh, so, I was speaking with the head teacher from Olive Tree Primary School uh, I believe yesterday and there's some fantastic news that they want to announce and they have announced it uh, and that is that is once again opening up for new students and new student enrollment so we're going to be discussing what's been happening at the Olive Tree over the last couple of years so let, let's get their journey from the head teacher directly who inshallah should be on his way into the studio and then in the last half an hour we're going to be getting a, a you know an Islamic perspective on the coronavirus, right? The coronavirus, which is now I'm just looking at the BBC headlines. BBC headline reads: the coronavirus infections nearly a hundred thousand globally 100,000 globally right whilst a lot of us are following it medically in terms of what's happening what we can do to prevent to protect uh, okay uh, ourselves have you actually considered islamic view and the islamic perspective on epidemics on the plague or whether it's the coronavirus or such you know kind of global international kind of viruses and and and, and epidemics what what does islam have to say about it all right so we're going to try to we're going to we're, we're going to be speaking to inshallah ta'ala ustad aqil mahmoud who's the imam and khatib of green lane masjid and he was in luton this fr today he was in luton today and he gave the khutbah in islamic center on this particular subject matter and i found it very very interesting i was there i found it very interesting and i thought let's get this imam to give us an islamic view on this particular subject matter all right, so that's the lineup for for the next hour. If you want to get in touch, oh one five eight two four eight one eight double two zero triple seven nine four eight one eight double two. But before we discuss those, let's move on to uh, Luton groups coming together to make anti-knife crime art display. Very, very interesting. Sounds very interesting, right? Uh, and and indeed, uh, this is the organize organizations have created an art 
exhibition, right, about gangs and about knife crime. Uh, so a number of different organizations have come together uh, and they're putting together this exhibition. It's going to open on Saturday, the, uh, or Saturday 14th of March at the University of Bedfordshire from 12 till 3. Uh, and it's going to be an exhibition about, like I said, knife crime and gangs, right? Uh, it's going to be highlighting both the problems and the solutions when people become involved in gangs and knife crime. Why don't we speak to someone who's actually involved in the organization of this initiative and let's find out more about it. I think I've got Mia on the on the on the on the phone uh, mia are you, are you on the phone yeah hello okay now I, it says me i don't know if that's your full name uh, if that's if it's, if that's what you me, want me to refer to you as is that okay yeah that'll do don't ah, worry fantastic about it. okay mia all right firstly so welcome to friday night live welcome to inspire fm i've just given a quick introduction in terms of uh, the local initiative which is uh, uh what is it's about the, some of these groups coming together uh, to together to make an anti-knife crime kind of art displays is is that is that about right yeah essentially um so the project we decided at the very beginning that we wanted it to be art based right so Every, um, like our general kind of things that we tend to tackle are um, issues like gang crime, um, like knife crime, stuff like that, um, and trying to like keep people, like young people in particular, safe and off the streets. Yeah. Um, and the way that we wanted to approach it this time is through art. Um, so we decided that we were going to do an art exhibition and ask a lot of people if they would do some pieces for us to display. And it's in all kinds of forms of art. So. Right. sort of visual arts and owl, mm. so like sound and performance and stuff like that. So everything is kind of coming together right. as a way of raising awareness. Okay, sounds interesting. And this is happening on, on, on the 14th, uh, 14th of March, is it Saturday in the University of Bedfordshire? Yes, yeah. Okay, so, sounds good. Where, where did the idea come from then to, to put, put this together? Well, we are always looking for a way to kind of engage the community because it's what we do as a social enterprise company right. we're always looking to bring people together right. um and an approach that we haven't quite taken yet was like through the arts and stuff like that All and right. i had recently joined the company just before this event had started All right so i gave my input on it right. um as well as other people saying um that a good way of expressing these kinds of things is through arts because a lot of people can express emotions and their thoughts and feelings and opinions through okay. so many different forms of art and it's the most diverse way of doing these things so from there we've just kind of developed a lot of ideas and come up with this whole event right good good sound, sound, sounds very good sounds very interesting and, and how's the response to to this uh, so far i mean are, are you able to uh, reach the the intended target audience is is the feedback what's the feedback at the, at the moment that you're getting back well, so far, um, the mm. feedback. The, the, sorry, or oh, the feedback that we've been getting is um, it's really good because um, our target audience is kind of it's very broad because right. we want to bring awareness to young people, but then we also want to um, kind of bring it to people's attention that are older than like the sort of Generation Z, if you will. Um, sort of like looking out for the younger people and kind of doing their part to help as well. Right. So there's something for everyone in the exhibition in all different um, elements of it, all the different things to look at and to engage with. Right. There's something for everyone to take from it. 
All right. And in terms of the target audience for this, I mean, of course, you're addressing gangs, knife crime. So, you know, I would assume it's, it's, it's the youth, it's, it's the younger generation. How have you been able to appeal to that kind of younger target audience to get involved and then to indeed attend this exhibition, which happens, of course, I think, is it next week? Yeah, yeah. Um, so me, myself, I'm 17 and... There's oh, okay. a fair few of us in the company who are around the same age as me and then right. a little bit younger, a little bit older. Okay. So we, of course, are bringing people along and doing things like that. And then we all have our own sort of individual tasks, right. which are going to be sort of presented at the exhibition. Right. So, for example, I've written a short play. So right. I've had to cast that and write that, and that's going to be performed. Okay. Um, so that's kind of engaging and involving people with the same age range and i can sort of bring people in from my college as well okay okay fine so it's been advertised in colleges and 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 some of the local institutions i guess and and that's where you're getting the uh, awareness raised amongst that kind of target audience yeah definitely and we do other sort of workshops and exhibitions in the meantime like up until the event and then we're still we're mentioning it to people as we go along and sort of trying to keep everyone engaged even outside of the institution so people that we don't see in everyday life just kind of trying to expand the sort of the range of people that are going to be there okay fantastic thank you very much Mia for joining us this evening on Friday Night Live unfortunately we've run out of time but really appreciate your your input into our conversation this evening thank you very much Mia thank you so much wish you best of success thanks very much thanks okay listen that was uh, Mia who was speaking to us on behalf of uh, uh, I don't have the organization name here, unfortunately. But anyway, she was speaking to us with regards to a number of different groups coming together to make anti-knife crime art display. It's going to be happening. This exhibition is going to be happening. The Stop on Think exhibition is going to be happening next Saturday, 14th of March at the University of Bedfordshire from 12 till 3 p.m. And it's about, you know, highlighting both the problems and the solutions when people become involved in gangs and knife crime a very interesting in, 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 in initiative i think and uh, the fact that they're using art definitely i think will be appealing to uh, a lot of the younger target audience and if you have got the time do pop along uh, to this exhibition i think it'll be well worth it right inshallah we're going to move on we're about 12 13 minutes past the hour 7 p.m that is and we're going to be moving on to another local story inshallah ta'ala, and that is involving one of our local islamic schools uh, and uh, of course this islamic school has been in the press for a number of reasons but recently mashallah they've made a, a very positive announcement to uh, the local uh, community alhamdulillah and uh, mashallah so we've got um, uh, the head of the school who's come in, inshallah, ta'ala, and he's going to be is joining me, and he's going to be providing, a, shedding some light on this particular issue. But briefly, inshallah, the the school has made an announcement that is now open uh, open to enrollment once again after a recent. Uh, I think period where it wasn't able to take on new students. Uh, we've got Brother Abdul Wudud, who is the head teacher at Olive Tree Primary School, joining me here in the studio. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh, uh, Brother Abdul Wudud. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And jazakallah for, for joining me here in the studio, alhamdulillah. So we've got some positive uh, news, we've got a positive announcement that we're making, inshallah, that you've made. Uh, do you want to share the announcement with uh, with our listeners, with our community? Yeah, sure. Uh, jazakallah for first and foremost for having me on the show today. Um, it's been uh, a long journey for us um, and I guess um, a long time coming, but alhamdulillah, after uh, a long journey, 
two, two and a half year um, struggle, perseverance and dedication, the school is finally now in the position where we can actually enrol new students. Now that sounds a bit strange because that's mm. the norm for most schools if not all schools yeah but in that particular case it hasn't been the case ever since um uh, april 2018 and uh, we've had this uh, challenge on our hands since the summer of 2017 so for us to get to where we are today is a huge milestone um, and a huge step in the right direction, certainly right. for where we want to be, inshallah, in the future. Right, so subhanAllah. So that's, that's great news that you're now able to enroll, right? So very quickly, I don't want to touch too much upon the negatives, but I'm intrigued. What happened? Why were you stopped from being able to enroll So before I answer that question, brother, if I can just add that, um, the team that's currently in place at Olive Street Primary School has been there since the summer of 2018. Right. So what happened prior to us, it would be a little bit unfair for me to comment um, in detail, um, mm -hmm. not knowing what the challenges and difficulties were. But in essence, um, to operate and run a school, an independent school, the law has certain standards um, and rules and regulations that you have to right. meet. Okay. And the way that they measure those regulations is that the DfE Commission officer to come out and do inspections. Mm. Unfortunately, rightly or wrongly, the school uh, failed a series of inspections which then triggered um, the DfE to impose certain actions right. uh, on the school. Mm. Um, and ultimately, um, it can lead to school closure. Mm. But in our particular case, it led to them saying, enough's enough. You need to sort yourselves out. We're putting a restriction in place, which means you can't take in any more students until you sort yourself out. Mm. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Now, what makes it 10 times harder for us is that an independent school is a fee-paying school. So effectively, the fees that come in from the students is what supports our yeah. running costs. Mm. So we had, a, we had a lot of pressure on, uh, on our shoulders over the last couple yeah. of years just I to stay imagine. alive. I can, I can imagine. But a lot of the parents will probably be thinking what I'm thinking, which is, okay, alhamdulillah, firstly, you know, congratulations are due uh, to, to the whole manage, management team and, and the whole school, mashallah, for, for pulling itself through this, you know, quite difficult period, right? Uh, but a lot of the parents will be thinking, okay, that's great that now you can get new students enrolled, maybe considering enrolling their children or at least, you know, you sure. know, coming and finding out more information. But before they do that, what guarantees there or what steps are being taken by the school right to ensure that we don't go back we don't go you know forward one step or forward two steps and, and back you know one sure. step um a number of things um with any organization such as this um with the charities such as ours that is heavily regulated both by the charity commission and by uh, dfe we need to ensure that we've got robust governance procedures in place so alhamdulillah we've got a new set of trustees We've got a governing body, and they give me a difficult time. Believe me, they do. Right. Um, so, um, first and foremost, you know they're they're regularly coming in uh, with the right skills and specialisms that are needed to come in and check what's going on. Separately, the school has some simple, very basic uh, working principles and ethics that it applies, um, and that's about quality. We have robust systems. Hmm. We have clear procedures. Everybody knows what everybody's roles are. Um, when we approach an activity, we approach it with integrity to know to ensure that we're doing the job properly and accurately. Mm. Um, one of our core values is Ihsan. Um, mm. When we talk about what is our objective, um, our vision as a school is to yeah. see a society upon Ihsan. So by having strong governance, making sure that we have robust systems in place, um, this inshallah allows us to 
puts in a position to meet those independent school standards mm. at the very bare minimum. Um, and that's something that I want to reinforce, actually, that, that we remind ourselves all the time that meeting these standards is the very bare minimum. Our aspirations go beyond that. You know, inshallah, the town deserves uh, an amazing, fantastic Islamic schooling provision. And, mm. and we want to be, uh, along with the other schools, um, might I say, we want to provide that community with those uh, with those educational standards right. that they expect and deserve. So I'm just reading from your uh, announcement. Since being uh, taken over by new management in two th- July 2018, the school has been on an upward trajectory, and that re- reflects in, in terms of this achievement. Uh, and the recent Ofsted inspection was, what, February 2020, which is just uh, a few weeks ago, right? That's right. Uh, which is now live on the website, confirms that we now meet all the independent school standards, which is fantastic. So, so what's the... The category that they've given uh, Oxt- uh, Olive Tree now. Then. Okay, so when Ofsted come out, um, they come out to do a quality check, and that's when they give you your outstanding, right. good, requires yeah, improvement, yeah. inadequate. Mm. In our particular case, it was purely a compliance check, just right. to check that we meet the bare minimum. Mm. So for now, uh, we remain as meeting all the standards um, and having a requires improvement mm. rating but we're anticipating another full inspection which will specifically focus on the quality provision mm. um, possibly by the end of this year, beginning of next year. Mm. Um, so that's when we will get so, a, a so revised rating. So obvious question, but you think you're ready for that or, or you're, you're working towards that and you will be ready? I, I think I'd be lying if I said that um, we, are, we, we, are, we are there. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I'd be also probably lying if I felt as though uh, I didn't feel an element of confidence. Mm. It all depends on... If I can throw the question back to you for a mm. moment, if you don't mind me <laughs> <laughs> switching roles. Well, why not? If I can answer it, I'll try it. <laughs> it all depends on what is the measure of success yeah. you know what is the measure of success so yeah. as a community does mm. the community want us to provide a free provision which meets the standards mm. um but is requires improvement and for mm. them is that sufficient mm. i guess for us no that doesn't work for us we've come into this wholeheartedly with the intention that we want to make this an amazing school Mm. we want to be right up there Mm. as being one of the best schools in the country Mm. and some people might think well you know that's that's an ambitious plan but Mm. that's our ambition we Mm. really want to set us we we came into this with high standards high expectations we've thrown a lot of time energy money into this and Mm. and we're determined to get there so for us inshallah Mm. it's a trajectory that we're on that's in the right direction what might the rating be come the end of the year january Mm. i'm not sure at the moment but i certainly hope and we pray and we're working towards it going Mm. up um but it's it's a journey that we're on and and i think you know over the coming years you know we've set ourselves a five to seven year strategy uh, and we hope to be right up there uh, in years to come all right, alhamdulillah. I mean, I, mean, you, I was going to say earlier, I mean, when you talk about ambitious and, uh, you know, being one of the best schools, I mean, you, you, you use the term ihsan, and ihsan, I mean, it's not a very light term, right? It's a very lofty term, right? That, you know, a lot of people just associate with the ibadat, but it's not just about ibadat, it's about ihsan in every matter, right? That's right. And in terms of schools, and especially Islamic schools, I mean, look, traditionally, historically, there's, there's, a, there's a big debate in terms of Ofsted versus Islamic schools. And we know that there's 
there's a political agenda when it comes to Ofsted on, on a lot of issues and they can bring you down on those issues which you know are, are more politically motivated and religiously motivated mm. you know or you know uh, you know and, and, and coming from the ideological perspective then when it comes to pure academics right but when it comes to academics I'm sure all of our listeners are going to be supporting the view that you know we want schools which are really excellent Islamic schools that are really excellent that are driving you know academic excellence right and, uh, and and unfortunately a lot of Islamic schools I understand the the restrictions and the resources and all the challenges that we've we have but when we, when we set up Islamic schools you know we 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 we, we set ourselves up to face these challenges right mm -hmm. so that's inevitable so we can't say we've got a lot of challenges and we've got resource problems that can't be an excuse right so how do we achieve that academic excellence and, and do you think that you've got all of those different parameters now in place or getting into place to you know so the people that when they start speaking about olive tree now they're gonna start speaking mashallah we can see the change you know are, are you getting that kind of feedback from from parents at this stage Alhamdulillah, oh, on that journey. Yes, Alhamdulillah. Um, one thing's for certain is that when it comes to the uh, education provision, we take mm. it really seriously. Mm. Um, it's at the center of everything that we do, whether it be um, teaching the national curriculum or whether it be teaching Islamic studies. I thought for a second there you were going to say that we set ourselves up um, to fail. <laughs> and, and actually, in some cases, this is one of the things that early on as a team, the new management team had to ask ourselves the question was that mm -hmm. the expectations that we've set for ourselves, are they too lofty? Are they too ambitious? Are they achievable? Are we setting ourselves up to fail? Because for us, it was it was really simple. We're coming into this wholeheartedly committed to only achieve the best. And the best is across the national curriculum and Islamic studies. So we're on that journey at the moment mm. where, alhamdulillah, I can tell you, for you know, um, sat here right in front of you right now, we have a robust curriculum, both for the national curriculum and Islamic studies. Mashallah, we have some amazing teachers within our group as well, really dedicated, really committed, um, and they really put a lot into it. We have a management team within the school that's operational. Um, we have external supporters who are coming in regularly monitoring, advising, training our staff. And Alhamdulillah, it can only get better. Okay. We've got some plans for the start of September. Yeah. And again, it's building on what we have okay. um, currently at the moment. So inshallah, the plan is to build on that curriculum and to make improvements. If I may, for just a slight second. Uh, we've, we've only got a minute left. Right. So uh, very quickly, last minute. Okay, w what's the plans for, for Olive Tree now? Enrollment's back open. Great news for the community. What are your what are your plans? What so, are your numbers that you're, you're targeting? Okay, so what's the message? So the immediate short-term um, um, challenges for us or, or actions for us is is to look at enrollment. Mm. I've had four inquiries since I've uh, since we've got the good news, mm. and Alhamdulillah, it's gone really well. Yeah. Um, so we are working on um, accommodating the needs of the community with with enrollment. At the same time, our most immediate actions are preparing for September. All right. In September, we are expecting a huge intake of students. But at the same time, I just want to reassure you and all the listeners that we are not going to just open our doors and flood uh, the school. We're going to make sure we take the right students in that are appropriate, relevant for the school and those students' needs who we can meet. Right. So, inshallah, those are the short-term goals. Okay, uh, on that note, unfortunately, we've run out of time. So, Abdul, brother Abdul Wadud, Jazakallah here for joining us. Some great positive news from Olive Tree Primary School. Back up, for, for uh, you know, open for business, inshallah ta'ala. Come 
come now or come the new academic year inshallah yeah inshallah all right jazakallah hai sheh jazakallah hai for joining us and coming into the studio all right so we're going into a commercial break when we come back we're going to be discussing islam and the coronavirus don't go away last half an hour assalamu alaikum the following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on inspire fm Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Welcome back to Friday Night Live uh, This Friday the 6th of March uh, evening Which is uh, corresponding to I believe the 11th of uh, Rajab uh, Subhanallah we're already, to, we're already in the last half an hour of the show I think it's been a very very interesting Okay it's, it's all well, it's pretty biased for me to say, but I think it's been a very interesting show this evening. Uh, some very interesting conversations, uh, ranging from the US and the Taliban through to Turkey and Syria. So a lot of very politically centric conversations in the first hour of the show. And I, and I, I found it very thoroughly informative. I don't know what, how you found those conversations. 01582-4818-220-779-4818-22 for your SMS WhatsApp messages. would really be interested in in hearing your opinions uh, because I found it very intriguing, very informative and very, very educational. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, and then uh, last half an hour, we've been discussing, of course, local stories, some very positive stories in terms of Olive Tree Primary School. Jazakallah for brother Abdul Wadud, who, was, who is the Olive Tree head teacher, coming in to the studio and also making the attempt to come into the studio. Great to see you in person. But a very positive announcement in terms of the Ofsted restrictions being lifted. And of course, the school is open, open for business. And of course, enrolling new students. Right, so earlier I was uh, making, uh, in the o- opening announcement, I made an, uh, an interesting comment, or I made a comment rather, that the, the Jummah Khutbah uh, that, uh, the, in the masjid that I attended t- today, uh, today uh, was uh, the khutbah topic was actually on the coronavirus, right? Islam and coronavirus, Islam and epidemics, Islam and and whether it's the plague or whether it's any other virus or whether it's any other health problem. You know, Islam has a very unique position uh, and a unique perspective on addressing these issues, and and it's really interesting because. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, right, last couple of weeks, the news has, of course, been dominated by coronavirus, right? And that's understandable, right? It's an understandable because it's having uh, such a huge impact globally. And a lot of people have become, you know, quite nervous about it. A lot of people are asking questions about it. And a lot of people are looking at it, you know, from a perspective of how do we protect ourselves? You know, how do I, you know, ensure? And, and you know, a lot of people who are probably a lot, uh, you know, a, a can be a, a quite casual when it comes to personal hygiene are probably up their game uh, you know I have to personally confess that I'm washing my hands a lot more thoroughly a lot more thoroughly than I was previously right so there you go I've made a you know a change to to my personal you know the way I wash my hands a lot more thorough I've looked at these BBC videos in terms of 
20, you know, how you should be washing your hands for 20 seconds. I mean, who's got 20 seconds to wash your hands? But I'm sure everyone's now, you know, washing their hands thoroughly. Uh, but today's khutbah was very interesting because it, you know, addressed, you know, looking at the virus from a different perspective, not just from a medical perspective, not just from a perspective of how do I keep myself protected, not just from the perspective of how do I, you know, ensure that I don't perhaps go to those places that I can avoid uh, so that I don't potentially Capt, you know, catch this particular virus, but it looked at it from an Islamic perspective. It looked at it from a perspective of how you know life and how vulnerable life can be. And I think what this virus has put into perspective is that we make all of these fancy you know plans, but then there's a greater planner than us, right? And it actually puts into things into perspective. Suddenly, now that we see how vulnerable we all are as human beings, right? So that's one perspective. And then also, how does Islam address these preventative measures around, you know, ensuring that the virus doesn't spread? And there's also announcements, of course, last week we addressed this on the radio show. With regards to the Saudi authorities, you know, putting restrictions in terms of the visas that are being issued for pilgrims to go and make Umrah, right? That's been, you know, restricted. There's uh, images going around, there's pictures going around with regards to, you know, the haram, you know, being, you know, you know, you know, the preventative measures being in place, you know, it being, you know, you know, sprayed with, you know, what, you know, you know, it's been sprayed to ensure that those infections uh, are not, you know, spread and in fact there were some pictures going around where there's only very very few people around the, the haram doing the tawaf whilst the authorities take the preventative measures we uh we the, the the khatib that we're trying to get through to today who's going to address the the islamic issue is uh, ustad aqil mahmoud do we have ustad aqil mahmoud or oh, we can't get through to islam ustad aqil mahmoud at the moment all right so we've got a couple of jeep a couple of gps that are on the on, on the phone that we're going to be speaking to we've got dr Sufyan Ali and we got Dr. Murtaza Rashid, both GPs uh, and uh, uh, both, uh, you know, in, in, let's get their perspective on things in terms of where we are with, with the virus and what is the advice that's being given to the the, the masajids because I, I believe one of the doctors is uh, from uh, MCP. Alright, Dr. Sufyan Ali, Dr. Murtaza Rashid, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Friday Night Live and Inspire FM. Waalaikumsalam. Waalaikumsalam. Okay, Sakla Right, I, I know one of you is uh, at least involved with the MCB. I, I don't know if it's Dr. Sufyan or Dr. Murtaza. Uh, I'm involved with the uh, British Islamic Medical Association. Ah, and is that... We published an article for the MCB today. Right. And a poster yesterday. Okay, uh, okay. Is, is that Dr. Sufyan that's speaking, is it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you you issued some some uh, health advice to you to MCB to then be issued on to the massages. Is that is that correct? Yes, we published a, a kind of an article today right. for all the masjids. Okay. Um, but yeah. What what, what what's uh, g g give us the the gist gist of the article then, uh, Doctor Sevilla? So I mean, I think uh, first of all, the advice that public health are giving that's one of the kind of main pieces of advice that we're giving to the masjid as well. But just we're trying to make sure we kind of emphasise it to the places of worship. So mm -hmm. that was exactly what you were discussing about hygiene uh, right. with regards to washing hands um, and uh, you know washing hands after surfaces, washing hands um, before eating, not touching your face, um, and. Uh, Yes, yeah, just being kind of more vigilant with regards to hygiene. The right. more specific things that we were talking, we were mentioning to the masjid was with regards to um, cleanliness of the wudu area, 
the kind of congregational prayer as well, and that at the moment there's no advice against uh, public events. Hmm. But we feel that um, our congregations are mostly elderly, unfortunately, hmm. and the, we know that the virus spreads in crowds. So we're just saying that we should be emphasising to people that come to the masjid to, uh, even if they're mildly unwell, to think about avoiding it unless it's necessary. But just because we don't want to spread the infection, whether it ends up being corona or the flu or any other illness. Um, Amongst other things as well, if you want me to, just with regards to planning ahead and what you would do if things were to get worse. Right. Okay. All right. So, so we, we can come back. We'll come back onto that. Let, let, let me go to Doctor. Is is it Doctor Murtaza? Or is it Doctor Mufaza? Doctor Mufaza. Mufaza. Okay. I just wanted to make sure I've got uh, the, the the producers have put the naming correctly. Okay, Doctor Mufaza. Okay, Doctor Mufaza. I mean, f- from your perspective, I mean, I'm looking at the headlines at the moment. Coronavirus globally. We, 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 now the statistics are almost hundred thousand uh, global infections. Right. Uh, no one can. Uh, undermine the significance and the importance of it right uh, i mean some of my listeners may okay I, just picking up on dr sufian's point about even if you're not feeling that well perhaps it's better to avoid going into you know massages for example into you know play, uh, into places where other people are present i mean w- would you say that that's uh, potentially uh, taking it one step too far or, or would you would you concur with, with that advice you know, the way things have been going with this so far, it's, it's, as, as we all know, that it's quite an unknown kind of path that it's taken. And mm. it's a virus that's not been very well known to us. Um, and the way it's spread, it's far more than what any other virus has spread uh, in the recent times. Like uh, we've had this, uh, the, the flu viruses, the bird flu and the swine flu, and then we had the SARS and the MERS yeah. virus, which were, which were all kind of contained within uh, their, you know, the areas of origin and yeah. didn't spread that far or wasn't that significant, even though they had higher mortality rates. But hmm. we can go into that later. But uh, but this has kind of globally gone, and there's various factors, uh, obviously, that have influenced that. And it's because we're living in the social media era, so we yeah. we are finding out very quickly, uh, minute by minute, the way we find the cases. So that wasn't the case maybe even 10 years ago. Hmm. So that, that may be an influencing factor. But... Uh, we cannot emphasize it enough that, you know, it's obviously we need to limit the spread. Mm. So if you, uh, it obviously, and it's not very practical to shut ourselves in the houses as well. Yeah. So it's, it's just uh, being, uh, using common sense, of what, unnecessary travel, unnecessary mm. uh, crowd. You, if you can avoid it, then that's the best thing you can do. Right. Um, because uh, obviously it is spread like a normal cold or normal flu virus. So, so avoiding those sort of contacts yeah. uh, is probably the best thing to do. But it doesn't really mean that you need to avoid everything or to be really scared or uh, uh, because it causes panic and un- unnecessary sort of uh, fear. All right. But, okay. but you just have to be sensible about it. Okay. Uh, and, and from a medical perspective, uh, Dr. Sufian, I mean, w- w- what's been your, you know, I mean, as, as a medic, of course, you've been following the news, you've been following the uh, the story with regards to the spread of this virus. W- w- what, it, what is it different that you're seeing about this uh, particular coronavirus uh, as opposed to any, any other virals or any other uh, you know, viruses that we, we know historically? 
And, 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 and secondly, maybe also, you know, how are the medics, how, how are they responding to this? I mean, of course, at the moment, there's no known cure for it. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure the world's, you know, med medics are, you know, working towards something, right? I'm sure there's a huge, you know, kind of uh, pressure on, on, on the pharmaceutical industries. Uh, you know, there's a huge incentive, of course, in terms of financial economics. You know, what are you reading and what are you seeing that's happening in, in, that, in those areas? It would be interesting to know. Um, so it's kind of first of all what you're mentioning about what we're seeing different. Mm. If I'm being honest, I, I would emphasize more that what, the things that we see similar to other right. viruses. Right. And I know Dr. Morsa mentioned about the, the, the kind of rapid spread, mm. which is a worrying thing. But I think we've got a couple of theories about that, like we're talking about social media. But it's actually acting very similar to the flu virus right. in that it spreads before symptomatic or it can spread at the very kind of early stages. Um, and so it's, it's and it's kind of duration period within your body as well is a similar um, type of period. It's going to take the last similar amount of time. Right. Um, so essentially, there's there's a lot of similarities. Um, the difference essentially is is that um, it's not a, the mortality rate is not as high as previous coronaviruses that we know about for right. SARS and MERS, hmm. but it is a higher mortality rate than flu, based on the information that we have now. And mm. based on information that we have in other countries, um, but actually, if you were to look at the mortality rate in the UK, it's actually about the same as the flu. Right. Um, so there's a lot of similarities, some some differences. But the key thing is, we don't know enough about it to be able to definitely say that this is exactly what it is and this is what's going to happen. So there's mm. a lot of kind of uncertainties which create a bit of um, kind of worry and panic sometimes. Right. Uh, what I would say within the kind of medical field, um, there's a lot of we don't know yet, being said, right. um, and we're, we're looking into it. The, I think uh, all the medical staff are kind of, from what I've seen, being kind of very vigilant, trying to do the best they can, trying to educate the patients, trying to educate the community, um, which is exactly what we should be doing, just about mm. simple measures. The more complicated measures with regards to vaccines and treatment, uh, it will come with time. They're working on it. Uh, yeah. I think whether it's going to be anytime soon, probably not. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we'll, right. we'll wait and see. All right, Dr. Sofia, thank you very much for your time this evening. Unfortunately, that's about the, enough time that we've got for, for this. Uh, but we appreciate your time this evening, and thank you very much for joining us on the Friday night. Night. Thank you, Dr. Sofia. Thank you, Dr. Sofia Ali. All right, that was uh, the, the medics giving us uh, their, their update and, and their perspective on things. But of course, I want to focus on, on the Islamic perspective on coronavirus. And I've got Ustad Aqil Mahmoud, who's the Imam and Khatib from Green Lane Masjid. Assalamu alaikum, Ustad, and Jazakallah for joining us on Friday Night Live. So, so I was Alhamdulillah. I was at the Islamic Center today earlier, and I was listening to the khutbah. I found it very interesting, mashallah. And and, and it's, it's 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 a perspective that I I suspect a lot of the Muslims in our community perhaps are not looking at from that perspective, right? Uh, maybe there, yeah. there there is a thought that is emerging in our minds, right? But a lot of us are looking at it from a medical perspective, very intrigued by what's happening medically, you know, globally. You know, how do we prevent ourselves? Maybe some kind of a, a, a fear factor also slightly creeping in but in the, we've got about 10 minutes in the last 10 minutes I want to just you know, re, you know open up that conversation to say hang on guys medically we see what's happening and we see the medics are trying to address it they're giving us the, the advice in terms of how we prevent and how we you know you know kind of isolate and, and so on and so forth what we can do as individuals but there's a wider perspective that we need to look at things right from an Islamic perspective how do we look at it from an Islamic perspective 
and, 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 and you know, perhaps a summary of some of the key points that you actually addressed in the khutbah today will be very pertinent, I think, for our, for our listenership, inshallah. So, what, 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 uh, in summary, you know, what, what would be the message that you would be, you know, that you would give to our, to our listenership when it comes to looking at coronavirus and looking at it from an Islamic perspective? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the khutbah today, we were basically discussing uh, the reality of life mm. and how uh, Allah talks about in the Quran how the inevitability of trials and tribulations that every single human being will be afflicted with in this world. Yeah. And yeah, Allah talks about how He mm. says that He is the one who has created life and death and everything else in between from illnesses etc so he can see so he can test which one of you is best in terms of deeds so we're always reminded in terms of the islamic perspective of uh, of death and yeah. the inevitability of death and how everyone will you know eventually die and this is just a, a process mm. that every single human being will go through muslim or non-muslim but I think when we have these kinds of circumstances and situations where you have viruses and people mm. being afflicted with these kinds of illnesses and dying as a result of these diseases or you know these contagious diseases, I think it kind of uh, opens a person uh, not not opens perspective, but it makes a person a bit more aware yeah. of the, yeah. the the risk of a person possibly dying from these illnesses. <laughs> but so, it's something that really mm. we shouldn't really be too surprised about because. Uh, ultimately, Allah has told us that these are things which will happen to every single individual, just mm-hmm. like a person suffers from a flu or from or from a cold yeah. or from any kind of illness or pain that he might go through, even psychological or mental uh, yeah. types of illnesses or pain that he might go through or anguish. This is, you know, just another type of <clears throat> illness that he'll go through. And if a person is afflicted with it, uh, it's more about how he behaves, how he responds. Okay, so uh, many uh, times a person is afflicted with an illness, and yeah. then he just ends up distancing himself from Islam as opposed to practicing Islam. Right. So, so I'm going to throw a number of questions at you, inshallah. So, so if you can just quickly shed light on those, and I'm going to try to get through as as many as we can. We've got about six minutes, seven, seven minutes, inshallah. So, all right, trials, tribulations, okay, death, and the and the vulnerability of life is all put into perspective when we see what's happening globally, right? Uh, so, autumn automatically almost it's inevitable for us to almost start you know becoming a bit fear uh, you know having, having that fear factor overtake us right how do is, is that inevitable is that natural is that something that is wrong and how do we control that how do we put that into perspective i mean there's different types of fear from an islamic perspective mm. there's those types of uh, fear which is unnatural for example uh, you know superstition mm. uh, bad luck you know if mm. i walk under this ladder then, you know, something's going to happen to me, I'm going to get bad luck. If a mm. mirror breaks in your house, I'll get seven years of bad luck. Yeah. And you're afraid because of these types of things happening. Of course, they have no basis from an Islamic perspective. Mm. But then you have the natural, the more natural fears. Mm. So a person, for example, being confronted with a lion, you know, on the, on the street, mm. that's going to cause a natural type of fear. Musa, Islam in the Quran, he also was afraid when the stuff that he was holding turned into a snake. Yes. And so Allah said to him, don't be afraid. Mm. So it was, it was a natural type of thing. So with mm. diseases and illnesses, <coughs> you know, a person, uh, you know, it's natural for a person to be afraid, afraid of death. Mm. Um, and it's not really something which a person is sinful for, mm. uh, because of course, you know, it could be as a result of his faith, as a result of his iman, you know, <clears throat> that he's worried about what may happen in the future. Mm. So in terms of, you know, having that fear, 
uh, again, it's about how one responds when he has that fear. Right. So if right. a person is afraid of this disease, of this illness, mm. and that causes him to basically do things which are contrary to Islam, that's mm. a problem from an Islamic perspective. Right. But if he was instead getting closer to Allah, worshipping mm. Allah more, giving charity, for example, <clears throat> giving charity is actually one of those ways in which if a person was afflicted with illness, those illnesses, Allah could potentially remove them. Mm. So it depends on what he does with that fear that he has and that he possesses. Right. And and how do we reconcile that with the qada of Allah and ajal? We know ajal is fixed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We know qada is something that is decreed from Allah and, and we, we don't have any control over what Allah has decreed over us, right? Uh, so, so so I understand that fear, natural, okay, it's inevitable for, for a lot of us as long as it's the, in the right context. How do we reconcile that with qada and, and ajal being from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Uh, well, when an individual has this element of, of fear in his heart of mm. uh, certain things happening, he also has this element of hope. Yes. And the scholars, they talk about how there's always this balance between hope and fear. So a person isn't so afraid, like I mentioned, where it ends up disabling him and mm. it prevents him from worshipping Allah and remembering Allah more. Mm. At the same time, he's not so hopeful that he loses that element of <clears throat> that element of fear or maybe you know, he's overconfident or he thinks his deeds are enough. Yeah. So that element that you mentioned of uh, amal, meaning having hope, hmm. uh, this, that's always balanced with fear. So it's about that healthy balance, having a healthy dosage of fear, while at the same time having a healthy dosage of, of amal and hope at the same time, hmm. so that they both counter one another. You yeah. know, and some of the scholars, they, like Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah, he talked about how their, their, their wings, on one side you have, the wing of fear and on the other side you have the wing of hope mm. and so too much on one side will end up you know causing you to fall whereas if they're both balanced then you'll, you'll, you'll stay afloat. All right, okay, subhanAllah. I actually said ajal, but uh, amal is fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also a very key concept oh, anyway. But, but don't, don't worry about it. All right, so it's a couple of other quick quick fire questions for you, inshallah. I like the point and, and, and the message that we, we're sending out to the community that actually all of this, okay, but not only puts things into perspective, but it actually should bring us closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And actually I, I, making us recognize and acknowledge all of these factors increase <laughs> our ibadat of, uh, and, and our worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and also realize that this is going to be a very key time for sabr because there are going to be some difficulties and we're already feel, you know, facing difficulties. We're already we're hearing, you know, try to avoid travel, try to, you know, really question, you know, whether you need to fly out, you know, you know, you know unnecessarily. Uh, and, and, you know, that Allahu alam in terms of how this actually, you know, you know, translate into the next, you know, few days, weeks, you know, months, Allahu Sabr and the ibad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Maybe a couple of words just there to reflect upon those points. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the issue of, <coughs> the issue of sabr because, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in the Quran, Allah talks about uh, <coughs> an individual being tested. Hmm. Allah says, well, we're going to test you verily for sure. Hmm. You're going to be tested from an element of, of fear, hunger, and a loss of wealth, one mm. and a loss of life, which includes like a person becoming sick. And he, you know, Allah mentions different ways a person is going to be tested. Then Allah says, and give glad tidings mm. out of all those people who are going through those tests. Uh, give glad tidings to those who show patience, those who are patient. Mm. 
عندنا الله الذين إذا أصابتهم مصيبة قالوا إن لله وإن لرجون when they're afflicted with any kind of calamity from the ones that Allah mentioned <coughs> instead of panicking they'll say instead to Allah we belong and to Allah we will return <coughs> so it's this idea of basically a person you know like we mentioned remembering Allah more Mm. realizing it's a test from Allah. You know, once you recognize something is a test from Allah, yeah. then you respond accordingly. Sometimes, yeah. you know, we go through tests in our lives and we don't actually think of it as a test. We think of it as, you know, uh, something, um, a misfortune that's been yeah. that, that we, that's, that we've right. fallen into and it's something which we can't uh, benefit from. We don't see the positives from it yet. If we recognize it as a test from Allah, then you could actually respond accordingly. You can gain closeness to Allah yep. and you'll be rewarded hmm. so long as you're patient, as, as Allah mentions in this ayah. SubhanAllah. Very quickly, we've got about a minute and a half, right? Uh, let, let, let's quickly touch upon prevention. Now, it's, prevention is a, a very much an Islamic you know, uh, principle uh, when it comes to these kind of plagues or when it comes to these kind of viruses. Very, very quickly, what, you know, I, I mean, it's the Islamic principle in terms of prevention and guidelines and principle is not different to, them, to the medical guidelines that are being issued uh, maybe a minute just to spend on uh, g- 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 summarizing that for us well, if I'm not mistaken uh, from the guidelines they've mentioned is a person uh, making sure he's washing his hands regularly and of mm. course as Muslims we're required to perform wudu before we pray and we pray five times a day yeah so you know at the minimum I suppose if somebody uh, kept his wudu for some of the prayers he'd be doing wudu at least two maybe you know, three or four five times a day also we have the the sunnah of something called tajdeedul wudu which is mm. renewing your ablution renewing your wudu yeah. uh, even if the person does have wudu he's encouraged to basically uh, repeat his wudu and he gets rewarded for that as well so you're purifying and cleaning yourself yeah. while on top of this you get wudu from allah also the the issue of sneezing into a, a handkerchief or a piece of cloth we know that the Prophet ﷺ and also the companions, they would, whenever they would sneeze, they would sneeze into into their clothes or a piece of cloth. They never had handkerchiefs mm. like we do because right. they weren't wealthy. Uh, but the idea is the same. So, you know, these things are things which we've been told to do, but it's something that's from the Sunnah, which is, you know, 1400 years old. Uh, excellent, inshallah. Definitely that tajdeed al-wudu is, is something that I, I hope my son's listening to because every time I tell him to pray, it's time for pray and make wudu, he says, I've already got wudu. <laughs> so maybe something inshallah. that he, he can take away is the tajdeed al-wudu, inshallah, ta'ala, and uh, def- inshallah. definitely. But, uh, but Sheikh, jazakallah for the khutbah today and jazakallah for coming at a very short notice on, on, on the radio, I think is is very, very informative, mashallah. But unfortunately, we've run out of time. Otherwise, I'd love to continue talking to you. No problem. Jazakallah hai, Sheikh. Jazakallah for joining us. Uh, and that was listeners, Ustad Akil Mahmoud, who is, of course, the Khatib and Imam from Green Lane Masjid, joining us this evening and uh, giving us the Islamic perspective on the coronavirus, mashallah. Very, very informative. And unfortunately, subhanAllah, we've run out of time. It's, it's, it is the end of the two hour show, mashallah. And the time has just literally flown by until next week inshallah it, it is me happy shaban friday night live uh, signing out assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh thank you for listening to our podcast why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefm luton